All right, it's great to see you all back on Sunday night. I love me some Sunday night at Sherwood, amen? Man, fantastic worship, fantastic time to be together with believers, and a fantastic time to go deeper into the Word of God. So tonight, as we're getting started on things, and it is... It's been a couple of months since we've been in the book of Galatians, so I'm going to have to set things up just a little bit on that side. But before we get into the Word tonight, I want to take just a moment to recognize two very special events that took place this last weekend with SCA. One of those is after finishing third in the region, our girls' basketball team defeated two number one seeds, not one, two number one seeds in the playoffs to make it the championship game yesterday. That is exciting. So while they did, they lost on that game. They actually lost to the reigning state champions. They did things incredibly well. So that is a team that is led by uh, Coach Gary Oxendine and also by a senior, Ms. Joy Kendrick, who, yes, listen, who just went beyond 1,700 points in her career. What a great accomplishment. So all of those who are part of the basketball team, coaching staff, if you all would, stand where you are for just a moment so everybody can see you all. There we go. All right. Wonderful. Great job. Great job. So you all may be seated, and also after six months of practice, our high school theater department of SCA, they completed multiple, and I do mean multiple, shows of The Little Mermaid. So through a very, yes, give them a round of applause. <laughs> through a very talented cast, as well as a lot of parents and student volunteers and others coming in in order to carry all of this off. They did an incredible job. This was directed and led by none other than our own, here she is, Ms. Bryden Fox. Where'd Ms. Bryden run off to? She's around here somewhere. So if, if you were a part of the cast or crew or volunteers or directing or serving in any capacity, if you would stand for just a moment. All around, yes. Yes, thank you all. We have a lot, and I do mean a lot, to be grateful for. Watching baptism in two different services today, watching people come to faith in Christ, watching young people lead and lead well, watching community develop around, it's just incredible. Don't ever get used to the activity of God. It is a blessing. So I invite you at this time Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter number 3. Galatians, chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 1 through 5 tonight. As you find your place in the text, I'm going to take a few moments and set a couple of things up. Uh, back in 2012, I wrote a book entitled, Eight Questions in the God Who is Asking. And in the book, I outline eight different questions that you will recognize through your time with God, you might recognize it in the corner margins of your Bible, just eight questions that God tends to ask his people at various times over the course of their life. So in these questions, they help us to engage in what God is doing. And what I mean by that is what he is doing either in the world around us or many times by his spirit within us. Things like changing our character and renewing our mind and leading our lives towards his, 
his will for each of us. So questions are good. Questions are challenging. Questions require us to engage in some way. You can't sit idly when there's a question being asked. There's a part that it anticipates a response. So questions have a way of pulling out or pointing out or sometimes prying out some things that would have easily remained tucked away or left unnoticed. So today as we get back into our study, the book of Galatians, we find the Apostle Paul is in question-asking mode. He has a lot of questions as he begins in chapter number 3. In fact, in the first five verses, there are six different questions the Apostle Paul is asking. In this particular moment within our book of uh, Galatians, the study, we find that a major transition is happening within the text. The Apostle Paul has taken two chapters to describe problems that were happening with the church in Galatia, to challenge some heretical teachings that have slipped into the church, and at the same time, to reestablish his apostolic credentials. He's done that in the first two chapters. At the same time, he's already shown us that adding anything to the finished work of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a slight variation. It is not an improvement on the gospel, but rather it is an abandonment of the gospel. It is a different gospel altogether. So now in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul transitions the conversation from maybe bigger issues that were impacting the church at large to specific individual personal questions that impact every one of us. Questions that cause us to think about where we stand before God. It's one thing to say, we at Sherwood have gone through this, or we at Sherwood believe this truth. It's another thing to say, do I believe what they believe? Am I on the same path as everybody else? Sometimes you can get swept into the crowd and you don't really challenge it and say, what do I believe about that particular topic? So that is what he is doing in this section. He comes for you. He comes for the crowd that's receiving this letter. And he's basically saying, how did God change you? Don't look around you. How did he change you? Where did he find you? You know about somebody else's story, but I want you to think back. Where did he find you? What happened to you? How did he change you? So his questions address personal struggles that we all face at certain times. In fact, his questions are probably some of those penetrating questions that we try to avoid. So here's what I mean by that. If you struggle with the need to control everything, he's got a couple of questions for you. If you get impatient with God and feel the need to help him out, he's got a couple of questions for you. If you struggle to find the balance between acting in faith and acting at all, he's got a couple of questions for you. It's a lot of great questions. Now, they are personal. They are practical. A couple of points. They can be painful, but they're necessary. So I invite you, if you would, look with me in the text, Galatians chapter 5, or Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. I'm speaking this evening on necessary questions. It says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. I mean, he's coming after them. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we get into this text, we are asking God that you would guide us into all truth. God, may we give honest answers to the questions that we get into in this text. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So a man by the name of Watchman Nee, I have brought him up before. He wrote a book entitled The Normal Christian Life. And in this particular book, he shared an interesting hypothesis. It's a very short statement, but definitely worth pondering. Here's what he said. Until we know truth, we can never define normal. Until we know truth, we can never define normal. Our view of what is normal, apart from the truths of God's word, is often skewed by our experience. It might be normal for us. Our view of what is normal can be skewed by our education, by the people that we hang around. Uh, it can be skewed by our denominational preferences or maybe our personality type or even the generation that we're a part of. Context will often shape our views, and we have to be extremely careful that we don't equate, here it is, average with normal. Let me give you a great illustration. Average is not necessarily normal. The average body temperature of people in a hospital might be 101.5, but that's not normal. The average golf score on the PGA Tour might be 72. That is not normal for the rest of the golfing population. The average Christian in America, here's where we're going, average Christian in America might go to church one time a month and pray twice a week. But average is not normal. Instead of just accepting average without question, we need to go back and say, what does the truth of God's word say? Because until we know truth, we cannot define what is normal. So what is normal? What is the normal Christian life, as Watchman Nee asked? So here's your key statement that we work through today. Unexamined lives forfeit the fullness of God's blessings. Unexamined lives, those who are unwilling to stop and say, what does the word of God say about this? How is truth defined about this topic? Unexamined lives that just kind of meander and they wander and they go with the flow and they don't engage and they don't go deep and they don't ask the hard questions. Unexamined lives forfeit the fullness of God's blessings. So if we never ask, what is the normal Christian life? Or what does God desire of me? Then we may delude ourselves into thinking that everything is great 
when we're actually falling apart spiritually. Unexamined lives forfeit the fullness of God's blessings. So Paul's questions in chapter 3, they take us into the examination process. And they help us determine if there are any beliefs or if there are any behaviors that are not in alignment with the truths of God's word. And if they're not in alignment, then it means that in that area, we're not experiencing the fullness of God's blessings in that particular point. So we're going to ask the questions. I'm going to actually just read them straight from the text. I have them listed in your notes straight from the text. Each of these questions, let's pull them out. So here's the first one that the Apostle Paul started with. He said, you foolish Galatians, by the way, when somebody starts with, you foolish people, you know the questions aren't going to be easy. I mean, he's like, you crazy Christians, what are you thinking? Is basically how he's starting chapter 3. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Now, this question is intended to root out false teachers as well as false beliefs. They had worked their way into the believers' lives, and he says, we got to deal with this. And the way you deal with it is you find out where it came from. Where did you get that foolish thought that I've just addressed in chapters 1 and 2? Who was the one that told you that adding something to the finished work of the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to help? That somehow that's better than what Jesus has already done for you. Now, if you'll remember, it's been a couple of months since we've been in our study of Galatians, but there was a group that was in that particular region referred to as the Judaizers. And the Judaizers came in with this teaching. They said that it's not enough to just place faith in Jesus for your salvation and for your walk with God. Instead, it is faith in Jesus plus obedience to the Mosaic law. The moment anyone adds anything to faith in Jesus Christ, it's no longer the gospel. So he says, where did you get this stuff from? Because if you don't recognize where the foolishness crept in, it's going to come back on you again. So he's wanting them to now call out where are those false teachers. And if you'll remember chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, the apostle Paul was not mincing words when he got into his concern over this. Here's what he said. He not only challenged, he cursed the very people who brought that. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. And he goes on to say, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. He is to be damned, is the statement he gives. So Paul's first question is, where did that foolish thought come from? Who taught you this? Now, the word foolish, it does not speak of a mental deficiency, but rather mental laziness or carelessness. The Galatian believers weren't stupid. They were just careless. They had been taught truth, but they did not guard truth. 
So as a result, they began to allow other teachings and other ideas to come in. The word bewitched, it means to charm or to fascinate with flattery or false promises or encouraging, here it is, feelings over fact. Hey, can I tell you, not a single thing has changed in 2,000 years. There are still many believers, there are still many unbelievers who, when they're thinking about a church or they're thinking about where to go, it's far more on the side of who makes me feel good about my current state. Who can give me an experience? By the way, sometimes one of the worst things the church growth movement ever did is to name a worship service an experience. Because sometimes if you come in and all you're looking for is some godly goosebumps and the hair to raise and there's really wonderful feeling come over you, hey, you can get that at a concert sometimes. If all you're looking for is to be entertained, the enemy will entertain you. The enemy can provide feelings. The issue is when you encounter the truths of God's word, sometimes the way it makes you feel is bad. Sometimes you come in and you go back to what David said, like, I'm a worm before God. As, as we sang about this morning, I, I was a wretch before God met me. Sometimes it requires you to go back and say, here's where he found you. Remember what he's done in your life. And when you stray off of this path and things are not going in alignment with that and you're not walking close and clean before God, the same Holy Spirit who called you begins to convict you. And how does he do it? Many times it's through his word. And when the word is preached, sometimes it's not the warm, fuzzy feelings. Sometimes God takes you to the woodshed. And we need it. This phrase... He says, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. That, that phrase, it actually means publicly announced on a poster, which is interesting. Like back in that time, same as what we have in this time, a major announcement, something that was important, it would be publicly displayed. Like sometimes it might be a poster is saying, here's what's going on in the city. Here's an official decree. Here's what the law is saying. He's, he's saying in this, it says, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly posted. He says, he has been publicly portrayed before you. When I taught you about Christ, I gave you the truth. I publicly displayed this before you. You believed in that. You repented. He changed you. Now he's saying, so who has come behind me in order to change what you've already heard to be true about Christ? Now let me personalize it for all of us. Are you checking everything that you hear against what the Word of God says? Have you allowed false teachers to influence your belief system? Are there books that you're reading? Are there TV ministries you're watching? Are there Christian friends you're allowing to influence your thoughts, but they're taking you further away from the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If so, just know it's a bad path. 
straying from the path of truth never leads to the fullness of God's blessings. Question number two. He says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, the first question was intended to root out what would be considered to be false teachers and erroneous beliefs. The second question is very focused on how they received the Spirit of God. Did they receive the Spirit by works according to the law or did they receive the Spirit by faith? Now, there was an emphasis, if you happen to go through and just like to highlight in your Bible, I want you to notice that in verse number two, in verse number three, and in verse number five, the word spirit pops up. There's an emphasis here on the spirit's work in the believer's life. So why did he emphasize the spirit and not just say, were you saved by works or by faith? Why bring the Holy Spirit into this? Here's the reason. The only real evidence of salvation is the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Apart from God's Spirit manifesting himself through a change of our attitude, a change of our heart, a change of our behavior, a change of our character, a change of our desires, apart from the fruit of the Spirit, the manifestation of the Spirit happening through us, it's just he said, she said. Like somebody can tell you all day long, oh yes, I'm a believer. The question is, is the Spirit of God manifesting himself through your life? Romans 8, 9, it says, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. The Holy Spirit is vital to salvation as well as our walk with God. He's mentioned 18 times in this one particular letter alone. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of sin and reveals Christ, according to John 16. At salvation, we were born of the Spirit, John chapter 3. We are baptized by the Spirit, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are sealed by the Spirit, Ephesians chapter 1. At salvation, we are to walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5. Be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5, not grieve the Spirit, Ephesians 4, not quench the Spirit, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The Spirit of God is vital to our walk. So he says, let's talk about the Spirit. You say you have the Spirit. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by faith? Now drop that idea into this context. Believers in Galatia were being taught that they had to have faith in Christ plus obey the Mosaic law to maintain their salvation. So here's what Paul's doing. He's saying, let's just back up the truck for a moment. Go back to salvation, and I want you to think about this. What happened? How did you receive the Spirit of God? And if you tell me you received the Spirit by works of the law, then if that's the case, then basically you're saying Jesus died needlessly. Chapter 2, verse 21. Even our maturity in Christ is the result of the Holy Spirit's work within us. So he says, how did you receive the Spirit? The answer he's wanting to come to is by faith. It's by faith that we place our faith in the gospel of Christ. It's by faith that we enter relationship with God. It's by faith that the Spirit of God comes to indwell us. That now brings us to questions three and four. 
He said, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, the third and the fourth question are challenging law-based efforts as a means of growth in Christ. Did you know that every single believer, from the moment you get saved until the moment you see your Savior face-to-face, should be living with a what-now mentality? Here's what I mean. The moment we come to faith in Christ, our next question should be, what now? God, what do you want at this point? How do you want to lead at this point? What What are you challenging in my heart? Where are you calling me to walk out on faith? God, help me to understand what the next step is going to be. Now, this is a valuable and a dangerous question to ask based upon your context. You ask different people, what now? And you let them fill in the blank apart from what Scripture says, you could be in trouble. Because there's a lot of people that fill in that blank for you. (laughs) They will say, well, what now? Well, if you sow a seed offering of $39 into this ministry, here's what God will now do for you. They just filled your what now. If you say what now, and they say, in order to receive the fullness of God, you have to chase this new experience. Listen, when you got Jesus, if you got him, you got him all. He doesn't come in installment plans. Now, there is an awareness, there is a deepening of his work within the believer's life. But according to scripture, it tells us we are complete in him. I'm not waiting for another moment down the road. Now, here's what I can tell you. When you begin to walk away from the things of God, when you're not walking close and clean before God, many times God brings you to a place of awareness, and it's almost like a rejuvenating. It's almost like a reviving of what God has going on. But it's not that you were deficient from the beginning. You're just stepping into who you already are in Christ. So in this, be careful about How you ask that question, when you say, what now, be careful. So in verse number three, Paul gets us started through this question. He says, having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The flesh does not refer to the physical body, the human body. It it refers to the remnants of the old believer's life in Adam. The flesh is considered to be the habits and traits and tendencies that we developed while living under a sin nature. The flesh is what we employ when we try to meet our needs apart from God's grace. Here's a great way to describe that. When you have trained yourself, let's say, for example, you, have, you came to faith in Christ when you were in your mid-20s. And for 20, 25 years of your life, when you got in a difficult situation, you trained yourself to do these things to get yourself out of that difficult situation. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean you stop doing all of those things. You now have to retrain your mind through the grace of God to see things differently. So if we don't make that particular transition, we try to do in the flesh what only can happen in the spirit. So Paul is saying, are you so foolish, are you so careless that you're attempting to perfect yourself through your own ability? through your own strength, through the remnants of your fleshly nature that was in Adam. How could the weak, imperfect, sinful flesh ever enhance 
the Spirit's work in your life, it won't happen. Did you know today, many believers are still following that same path? Not only do I know it's happening, I followed that path. Not only did I follow that path, I taught that path for the first couple of years of being a pastor. It was all I knew. So when somebody would come to me and they're battling some type of a sin issue in their life, here's what I would say. Here's the things that you now need to do. You need to start going to church more. You need to read your Bible more. You need to pray more fervently. If you're not serving, you need to go find yourself a place of service. That's going to help you get you out of those bad situations. You need to get you an accountability partner, somebody who is going to hold you accountable. You need to do this, 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 and this. And after I gave them 1,000 things to start doing, I gave them 10,000 things to stop doing. You need to stop thinking those thoughts. You need to stop hanging with that crowd. You need to stop going in that direction. You need to stop feeding your flesh. You don't need to drink. You don't need to cuss. You don't need to chew and you don't need to run with girls who do. Amen? Okay. Now, let's be honest. Sometimes that's still good advice right there, so don't totally throw that out. But here's the thing. I would go through and I would tell them all these things, and you're like, well, well Paul, what's wrong with that? Here's what I didn't tell them. God has to do it through you. If you don't start there, you loaded them up on workspace righteousness that they can never do in their strength. They're going to try to employ the flesh. So here's where we start. You can't, but he can through you. You start by faith. You entered the race by faith. You run the race by faith. So when you come before God and you say, God, I'm in trouble. By faith, I know you alone can do what I can't do. So when I go into the word, God, I am trusting. I am trusting by faith that you would help me to understand what I cannot understand alone. I am trusting that you can change in me what years and years of me trying to do it myself cannot change. I'm trusting you to do that. I am trusting you to prompt me with issues in my life when those issues become apparent. You're trusting him to do it in and through you. And when you're trusting him to do that, guess what he'll do? He'll lead you into his word. He'll lead you into prayer. He'll often lead you into deeper accountability. He will lead you into the same things. The issue is you now know why you're there and you come in humble and dependent upon God instead of thinking that I can check this off my list and I'll handle it myself. Here's our next piece. We come in question number five. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Okay. Are you all ready for the hard part of this message? Yeah, we've just been warming up to where we're getting in on question five. Okay. So here's, here's what Paul is asking this group. When God used those trials of your past to show you your inadequacy, when he used pain to show you your vulnerability, when he used the problems to show you your limitations, did you not learn anything that he did? Did you, did you not pick up a single thing he laid down in front of you? Did, did, you, did you not get 
what he was doing. So at this point in your life, here's what he's basically asking. At this point in your life, have you failed to recognize the glaring limitations of your own ability? How many more days you got to wake up saying, starting today, I'm going to get this right? He's like, how many more days you got to keep doing that? So, and here's what he's saying. He, he actually says, did you suffer so many things in vain? In other words, what you've already been through was painful, and it had a purpose, and the purpose was for God to teach you, and yet you're not learning the lessons. He says, oh, foolish Galatians. He's like, did you learn nothing from the process of pain? And before we say, man, I can't believe they didn't, just know he could say oh you foolish Sherwood people have you not learned anything through the pain pain is one of the great teachers of life things that we're unwilling to pay attention to at other times pain has a way of bringing to the forefront of our mind and causing us to deal with things so he's asking the question have you suffered those things in vain. Now here's a, a good word. Here's a good word. God is not unwilling to help. He is waiting on us to get smart enough to know we need him. If we keep trying to do it ourselves, he'll keep letting us try to do it ourselves. He's going to keep bringing the pain. He's going to hope that one day the pain's going to be strong enough that we're going to say, I don't want to do that again. And he's like, thank you. I'm glad you're paying attention to me now. Here's the thing. God wants to live his life in and through us. The pain is not there because he doesn't like us. It's not there because he doesn't love us. The pain is there because he loves us so much. He knows if we keep trying to do it in our own strength, it's going to hurt us. It's going to hurt others. And it'll leave scars that will take years and years for us to process through. Let the pain do its work. Question number six, and we close. So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is a source question. Uh, the word provides, it means supply abundantly or with great generosity. In other words, he's saying God generously and abundantly with generosity, he provides us with his spirit. And then it goes on to say, and miracles. He generously blesses us with miracles. It's not one of those situations if he does just enough so that we still appreciate him. It's not a little dab will do you. He says he abundantly pours out his spirit. He abundantly blesses with miracles. Now this word miracles is translated from this word dunamis. It refers to inherent power or ability. It can refer to God's supernatural ability or it can also refer to God's power over the world, the flesh, and human weakness. Did you know when God brings character change in your life, it is a miracle. It is by the power of God that that happened. When God answers prayers, it's a miracle. When God wakes you up in the morning, it's a miracle. 
when God allows you to experience the blessings of worship and community, when, when you get a chance, oh, mm-hmm. think for a moment. You want a scary thought? I'll give you a scary thought to leave with today. Because that's what we do in Baptist life. Pastors just try to scare people. Here's a scary thought. Imagine where your life would be today if Jesus didn't come for you. Think of the problems. Think of the pain. Think of the heartache. Think of the brokenness. Think of the sleepless nights. Think of all of those pressures of sin, the the pressures of the world. Think of all of that weight sitting on you to this day. When I look back and I think about the things God saved me from, and I got saved at a relatively early age, mid-20s, I could not imagine the other pain that would have been in my life apart from that. So the question is, does he provide you with his spirit, I mean, abundantly supply, miraculously supply. Did he do that by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer, of course, is he did it by faith. He's wanting them to keep going back and challenging these teachings about the law. How did this abundant supply of the spirit encounter your life? It came by faith. The Christian life is not about us trying harder. It is about us trusting completely. So does that mean we do nothing? Absolutely not. It means that we live in response to what the Spirit of God is doing in our hearts. One of the hardest things for me to ever get my mind around when thinking about walking by faith, walking by works, uh, where the law fits in, all of those things, it was always hard for me because I felt like to live by faith means I just sit here and I just trust God to do something. And I don't do anything in connection with that. Like, hey, God, I got a problem. I'm just going to trust that you're going to handle it. Well, sometimes when you say, God, I got a problem and I'm trusting you, he then begins to prompt you and say, here's a couple of things that you do. It's still him leading through, but there's actions and work that comes along with it. But it happens in response to faith. Living by faith is a part of acting when prompted by God. So in conclusion, the Apostle Paul, he gives six necessary questions for those who are willing to examine their lives. Unexamined lives will forfeit the fullness of God's blessings. If we don't take the time to ask the questions, we often find ourselves thinking that we might be better off than we really are. Ask God if there is anything that is getting in the way of the fullness of his blessings being lived in and through you. So today's text is one of those other ones that emphasizes again the importance of preaching the gospel to ourselves daily. In this text, how did the apostle Paul address the issues they're dealing with? He took them back to the moment that they met Christ, took them back to what God did with the gospel, and basically said what he did here is the basis for what he continues to do in your life from there. Lots of great stuff to study in the text. I want to encourage you, go further in it. Ask God, take this to God in your quiet time. Ask him how he wants to address any issues in your life. Let's finish with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, 
In the name of Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Even sometimes when questions can be hard, we thank you for the fact that you're asking the questions that we need to hear. And God, I pray that we would have incredible clarity and honesty about where we stand before you. God, may you continue to do a work that began by your spirit. Continue to do that work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful night.